You're listening to a special edition Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting the pace earlier of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the number of Fed officials. banking system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta's Public Affairs Forum podcast. I'm Raphael Bostic. I'm president and CEO of the Atlanta Fed, and I'm really excited to have you here uh, for a conversation I'm going to have with Alessandro Aquisti. Alessandro is a professor of information technology and public policy at the Heinz College at Carnegie Mellon University. He's widely known as an expert in the emerging discipline of privacy economics. Alessandro, it's really good to have you here. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Well, it's been my pleasure as well. This is something that uh, I'm really interested in, and I think that there's a lot that we can learn from the work that you've done. So, so let's start with the basics. Mm-hmm. How do you define privacy? Like, what is <laughs> it? And has your definition evolved as the instruments that have developed to collect consumers' data change and become more common? So these are great questions. Uh, They're also challenging, uh, the first one in particular, because there are probably as many definitions of privacy as there are researchers (laughs) study privacy. Um, Nowadays, uh, most people, uh, when they talk about privacy, they think about uh, personal data. So this uh, informational view of privacy. But it's important to remember that that focus on uh, information is a rather modern phenomenon. Probably only from the 1960s, uh, the the, the focus of privacy research has been on uh, personal data. If we go back to uh, some of the early scholarly writings uh, about privacy, for instance, 1819's uh, Warren and Brandeis piece in the Harvard Law Review on the right to privacy, uh, they were thinking of privacy as uh, in, in, in spatial terms more so than informational terms. So the, the right to be left alone, the right to, to be in a space where uh, you are not going to be intruded by other people. Um, so the, 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 to me it's interesting that there are so many dif- different definitions of privacy uh, because it does suggest not only that privacy is a complex uh, uh, concept, which is for sure, but it's also a universal concept. What I mean is the following. Some people suggest that privacy is a modern invention, but in fact you can find references to privacy explicitly or implicitly already in the the holy books of uh, ancient monotheistic religions, suggesting Mm. that uh, privacy is some need that human beings have had and explored through history through space, cultures, and times, only the different cultures, different people, different times, conceive of privacy in very different uh, ways. So if you ask me how my view has changed, it's changed exactly along these dimensions. When I started working in this field, when I was a student at Berkeley, I was mainly thinking of privacy in informational terms, data, and then I discovered that there was um, so much more related to privacy. Uh, Ultimately, for me, Privacy is about this uh, uh, dynamic, this negotiation between public and private. Uh, so that's very interesting. And I have to say, 
I didn't expect you to become a historical philosopher <laughs> on the first question. <laughs> Me neither. I, I was trying to ask a, a pretty basic question, but it is really interesting, like listening to you about there are different modes of privacy. So now when you walk around most urban places, there are cameras that mm-hmm. people are on in many places. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they know they're on camera, sometimes they're not. Mm-hmm. Something that's become really common right now is like the ring system, the people's homes, mm-hmm. where there's a camera at the front door, at the back door, wherever. People, or even inside your home now. Or right? even like inside nest. the home. No, that's exactly right. And so that's a different notion of privacy mm-hmm. than the stuff that, people are talking about when they're talking about Facebook or much of the internet and tracking and those sorts of things. And does your scholarship treat them differently or or how how would you describe your scholarship in this context? That's a great question. So they are different notions. The key issue is whether we lose or we benefit from uh, treating them in part as different aspects of the same fundamental problem. And there are scholars who disagree on this. There are some scholars who suggest that that privacy is a misnomer. Uh, you go back to, for instance, Chicago schools, economic scholar like Posner and Stigler. They would suggest that th- the very term privacy is, uh, is not very useful in uh, academic discussions and even in policy and practical discussions because people mean so many different things. So if I use the term privacy, different people will hear different things and we are actually discussing very different things. Uh, Autonomy versus freedom versus uh, tracking versus uh, price discrimination versus home invasion. Very different things, Mm -hmm. right? I I, I accept it and I agree on that. However, other scholars suggest that, yes, all these things are different, but they go back to one common core, which I was referring to earlier, these boundaries or public and private, that we human beings negotiate in so many different ways in different uh, moments and aspects of our lives. So much of my work is indeed on privacy as informational privacy. So consumer data, Facebook, uh, and, uh, and uh, tracking, online advertising, for sure. So I, I try to focus on that because I'm an economist by training. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but because I also grew into uh, behavior economics and behavior decision research as I was studying privacy, inevitably so, then I started getting exposed to also some of these other dimensions of privacy, so much so that one of my currently unpublished but more interesting experiments is about possible evolutionary roots of privacy concerns. Just to give an example of how you can start from economics and you can end up indeed with something completely different from mm-hmm. that. So that's really, really interesting. So let's talk about some of the dynamics around privacy. So there's been a lot of conversation, and then we think there were congressional hearings on this, about the fact that consumers are often at a disadvantage in the privacy space because they, they may not know what information is being collected. They may not know how it's being collected uh, or, or how it's going to be used. This is an asymmetric information space. So when I teach my undergrads, whenever there's asymmetries in information, there are opportunities for exploitation, but there are also opportunities to get some extra benefits out of this as well. Can you talk about this? Is this a, is this a, a problem that we should be trying to solve or is it something we can capitalize on? I I feel that it is a problem that uh, we have been trying to address uh, not yet very successfully. The reason why I see it as a problem is that, as you pointed out, uh, information asymmetries are really endemic when it comes to privacy. In uh, When we go online, we rarely know 
precisely uh, what information is being collected. And even those uh, among us who are, in theory, experts in the field, uh, I should consider myself a, an expert because I do research in this area, and even I would not know. I would have a sense of what information is being collected, but I would not know where it ends up. Uh, I may know that when I'm searching for something on Google, Google uh, is collecting my IP address, is collecting my location, is collecting my queries, and is uh, connecting them to a history of locations and queries and clicks I've done before. But I don't know whether Google is uh, going to pass it to this group within Google or that group, whether it's going to share it with an outside group or not. By the way, in the, case, in the specific case of Google, I do know because Google is quite uh, uh, protective of the information, so they don't share it with outside companies. But for many other companies, we have much less information. We don't know ultimately what happens to our data, and we don't know what are the downstream economic consequences of uh, all this information collection and sharing. Uh, they may be beneficial, and typically consumers are told, uh, you know, the, 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 the sharing of data is what makes, uh, makes it possible to have free content and uh, free services on the internet. So you as consumer, you're going to benefit from this, don't worry. But in fact, there might be also cost, uh, some more obvious, identity theft, some much less obvious, price discrimination, or subtle influence in at the individual level or societal scale level, think you know influence on political elections, and and these costs are very hard to quantify and study. That's why I do find information asymmetry a real problem. And as in terms of solutions, there have been attempts to uh, propose solutions. For instance, in the United States, we seem to rely a lot on. Uh, notice and consent regimes, uh, basically privacy policies, the, the, the notice part, and uh, privacy settings, uh, the consent part. Uh, but much of the behavioral experimental research that I myself and many other colleagues at CMU and other places have done suggests that these uh, mechanisms uh, fail uh, to actually address consumer privacy needs. Uh, these uh, notices are hard to comprehend, hard to read. Very few people even bother reading them uh, because even if you do and uh, you realize that you may need a law degree to understand uh, everything. No, they're very them, difficult. They're very difficult. They are vague. They may say, well, we may use this data and we may share it with some business partners. So, are you really better informed after you read may share with business partners? You don't have actually factual evidence on which to base your decision making. So why waste your time even reading them? So this, con this notice and consent mechanism is something, is an approach which to me is broken. We still need transparency, but to me is a necessary, not a sufficient uh, condition for privacy protection. So we need transparency, but it's not enough. Well, one of the things I would, I had a couple of reactions to that. First, the existence of a disclosure form mm -hmm. may not equal transparency. Right. Like, so, so what you're talking about, and we have the same issues, like if you've bought a house mm. or if you've gotten a credit card, there are disclosures that you sign that you say you've gotten the documents, but oftentimes they're 
like in the case of mortgages, they used to be 40 pages long. And you know, you initial every page, but you're not reading all those pages and it would take so long and you probably wouldn't understand what most of it meant anyway that it's not particularly meaningful. Right. Uh, and so this this issue of disclosures, it's, it's a common approach that we have in our policy space to uh, the existence of any information asymmetry or the fear that there might be, but executing it in a way that actually reduces the asymmetry is extremely difficult. And I don't think we've really mastered this at all. I agree with you. And so you, you mentioned, and I wanted, I'm glad you did this because I, I wanted to go there about sharing. So the, the other reaction I had was there was a Wall Street Journal article just a couple weeks ago about some health apps that said they weren't sharing their data, but they actually were. Mm. And so there's an issue that even if it's written in the policy, you're never sure they're actually executing the policy internally. And so that, that's a disconnect there that it also introduces itself. And because the space is not really regulated, there's no one checking these things, mm-hmm. right? And so, so we don't have uh, easy mechanisms to verify these things unless you have an investigative reporter who happens to decide that they want to check on True. this, That's right. uh, which is which is a, a pretty significant. It's it, it, it's a, it, you're you are pointing at a, a, a really uh, significant problem, which is uh, uh, it's not just difficult for the end user; it's difficult overall to understand what really happens in the data economy. And and, and this may sound like a, a strong claim because we. Uh, I guess, are led to believe that the data economy is about transparency and offers more information about, uh, more quantifiable information, more metrics, more ability to control what is happening. But in fact, look, for instance, at what is happening in the area of online advertising and how both publishers, uh, online publishers, like online newspapers, mm-hmm. and merchants that buy ads are, have started complaining that they don't really know what happens in the black box on, on online advertising. Because in online advertising, theoretically, you can target ads very precisely of to course. the behavior of consumer. And that is true. Uh, but then there are all these other nuances, such as uh, not knowing exactly how many of those ads were seen by real humans as opposed to bots, for mm-hmm. instance. Not knowing whether the auction as a merchant you participated in and the price you ended up paying was in fact affected by which other uh, bidders, which other merchants were at the same time trying to bid for the same visitors and how much of the amount you end up uh, receiving as a publisher for showing us online, how much of that is actually remains how much of the money, uh, the, the, uh, how much of the surplus generated through through this process ends up going to the publishers, uh, we show the ads versus how much of that surplus remains with the uh, information uh, intermediaries, mm-hmm. uh, with the ad exchanges, with the auction platforms. We don't have good measurements of these things because the system is actually rather opaque. So what's interesting to me is that there is a little bit of lack of transparency at the individual level, but also at the level of the entire industry. So that's very interesting. And it really does, well, it's gotten a lot of policymakers' attention. And just recently, like in the last couple of weeks, California's governor mm-hmm. uh, proposed that there be a data dividend, mm-hmm. which basically saying, firms, if you want to use cons- consumers' data, you got to pay them. Facebook famously announced a reversal on their thinking about privacy 
and talking about the emergence of a privacy-focused communications platform that's more like a digital living room and then a digital town square. Mm-hmm. Like these seem to be pretty significant. You know, we're talking California, yep. where Silicon Valley is. We're talking Facebook, the largest data sharing platform. What do you make of these developments? I have two comments. One is that I want to see in the long run how much of this talk then uh, will uh, grow and transform and evolve into action so that only at the end uh, of this process we will be able to truly judge the, the these claims. The other committees taking the claims for what they are, they, they seem to suggest that there is a recognition both among policymakers and among the uh, within the data industry that the current system is broken, that it does not provide uh, something that consumers want, and we need to find uh, some some solutions. The the tricky part is the implementation because the devil, when it comes to privacy, is always in the details. For instance, Facebook may say that they will provide a more private uh, messaging system. Okay, but what if they are still collecting a vast amount of other data which makes the protection of uh, these particular messages almost uh, not a factor? Uh, we analyze a similar issue in an in a academic article we published a few years ago, which we called uh, aptly for this uh, conversation you and I are having, silent uh, listeners. Hmm. The listeners who are silent. What we found was that Facebook in particular, over time, gave uh, users more and more granular control of their personal information. So that uh, in the beginning, where you, if you were on Facebook in around, say, 2005, you could simply decide whether your profile was public or private. There were no uh, gray areas, no in between. And then over time, you could start selectively uh, sharing your photo with your uncle, but not with your grandmother, your birthday with this friend, but not this other network of friends, etc., etc., etc. And people started using these features because they allow people to, you know, feel they were somewhat in control. But interestingly, we didn't realize that in uh, allowing people to control how much they're disclosing to their peer, their uncle, their grandmother, their friend, etc., we are also making them forget a little how much they're disclosing actually to the other party who is listening all these conversations and following everything, which is Facebook itself. So the point of the silent listener is uh, a behavior point, is that if you give people control over their data, or you make them believe they have control over their data, people will start paying less attention to the fact that there is another entity who is actually monitoring everything they're doing. And, and this is, to me, potentially worrisome. So that's, that's very interesting. And um, I, I guess where, where, where I want to go is to sort of a baseline question. Is this a good thing? Right, so as a ac- former academic, I always get nervous when people quote things that I've written. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to do it here. Um, oh, no. so, so, so you and your co-authors wrote that um, the ultimate goal of tools and policies uh, meant to enhance users' privacy and security choices is, and this is the part where I quote, to increase individual, organizational, and societal welfare in a way that leads people to make more informed and more desirable autonomous choices. Mm-hmm. So first, do you think that's happening? Do you think that 
the way that these these tools are being de- deployed is is welfare enhancing mm-hmm. for either the individual organization and, and society. So uh, thank you, because you could have chosen a, a worse quote, <laughs> meaning uh, I, I can actually stand by that particular quote. I, I, I don't it's a, it's regret it. It's a good one. It's a good one. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. Uh, I, I stand by it in, in the sense that I, I still feel, I think it's worded uh, broad, uh, in broad enough manner that is should be quite uncontroversial. We, we refer to the fact that privacy has economic consequences, both the protection and the collection of data have uh, economic implications. They do create economic winners and losers. This is an undeniable fact, uh, meaning uh, it's in the data. It's not an issue of uh, opinions. Mm -hmm. Once we acknowledge that, the issue then becomes, can we see under what conditions there are certain uh, degrees of data sharing or data protection which help a consumer? or help all consumers as a whole, or help publishers, or help the data industry as a whole, or help society as a whole. As we go down that path, we realize that very rarely the interests of all these different stakeholders are always aligned. So let me give you a very simple example. Uh, Merchants and consumers. A consumer may be willing to share information with a merchant about what uh, their interests and preferences are so that the merchant can make offers which are closer to the interests of the consumer. You reduce what we, in, in, as economists, we refer to search costs, right? Yes. Better match. But the consumer may not want to share with the merchant how much they really like a given product what we as economists call willingness to pay. Yes. Because if the merchant knows the reservation price, then can charge exactly that price to the consumer. So here you have an example uh, showing how it's rational for a consumer to want to have some information shared, but not other, and where the interests of the two parties are aligned in one case, they both want to have preference information, and misaligned, in the other case, uh, willingness to pay. So I'm using this as an example to point out that there are all these intricate uh, trade-offs. They differ by stakeholder. So the the issue of how do we devise policies that try to I- improve a given stakeholder's welfare or entire, the entire society welfare, that to me is still an important issue. And if you ask me, are we there yet? I'm pretty sure that we are not there yet. Meaning, I don't think that we are uh, doing the best we can. If you ask me how to do it, I would have no idea because it's an incredibly complex <laughs> problem. So do we do it through technology, better technology? Do we do it through better regulation? Do we do it just by letting market forces play play their role? I do not know for sure. But I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that what we have now is the best of possible worlds. And the reason I'm saying this is that right now, we go back to the problem of asymmetric information. Mm-hmm. The consumer data is collected in manners that are often opaque to end users. So we don't know exactly how much we are benefiting from it. We don't know how much we are paying for it. It's a very opaque system, which seems to create uh, uh, a v- uh, very few but very strong winners, certain data company, and, some, and benefits to other entities. But we, again, we don't have a good sense or to what extent the other stakeholders are benefiting from this system. Well, to listen to you talk, and I, I like the way you put it in the sense that we have multiple stakeholders that are trying to accomplish different things, 
and success for one might mean a cost for the mm-hmm. other. Uh, it gets to trade-offs and the notion that we may be able to maximize the total amount of welfare, but it may be distributed in ways such that some are really worse off and some are really better off. Absolutely. Uh, and if that's the space that we evolve to, you know, then it may say that, you know, policy may need to intervene because we may be uncomfortable with uh, some people getting very, or some organizations having very large losses. Like that may be the thing we want to avoid as opposed to the total surplus. And it's a conversation we, we haven't really been having that way. And I think part of the challenge has been all how opaque it is just to even figure out, well, who's how much is anyone winning or how much is anyone losing? Because you have to have that as a precondition before you can start quantifying trade-offs and deciding what's going on. I agree with you. And, and, and indeed, if, if, if you consider the the field of uh, privacy enhancing technologies, so also known, uh, known as PET, PETs, so the, the, the field of research on uh, technologies that try to protect data, all right? And we have many of those technologies, by the way. Um, for um, over 20 years now, uh, both academic researchers and industry labs have uh, created protocols, cryptographic protocols, security protocols to pretty much make any online transaction that we are doing nowadays, make it more secure, more private, Uh, more private payments, uh, more private browsing, more private search engine. We think about a transaction we are doing online, you can think about a more private way to doing that, okay? What we don't know yet is uh, how do these technologies affect uh, uh, to, to use a economic ter- terminology, economic surplus, and the allocation of the surplus. In other words, if I start using uh, cryptographic protocols that uh, decrease the amount of data available, to, say, to Google, what are the downstream implications of mm-hmm. that? Is uh, Who is going to pay the cost for those technologies? Uh, is it the consumer? Because of those technologies, the behavioral advertising is no longer as precise as before and uh, not as accurate. Uh, is it society as a whole? Because due to those technologies, we now have less d- precise data, mm-hmm. and therefore the the next uh, researcher investigating cancer or uh, epidemics, they have less valuable data to find a cure or uh, yes, or it is. Uh, uh, just the company itself, for instance, Google, in this uh, um, scenario example, which sees a cut in the profit margin. So we, we have three different scenarios, consumer being affected, society being affected, mm-hmm. company be, being affected. All three may be true at the same time, or only one, or one more than others, but we have no idea. And, and that to me is one of the big unknowns in the field which we need to address because we want to understand how things may change once we have... Uh, once, once we deploy more private technologies. So we've been talking at very academic, sort of high philosophical, almost um, first principles type of uh, level about privacy. But you've actually been on the ground and some of your work has actually changed some practices. So I know that you've been talking with Social Security Administration and some of the work that you've done has changed how they assign Social Security numbers. Can you say, tell that story 
Yes, certainly. So the um, what we did uh, was uh, back. Um, it has been now about ten years ago to use publicly available uh, data on social security numbers, data coming from the so-called SSDI, Social Security Death Index, which is basically a database of the social security security numbers of people who are dead. And we did a statistical analysis on the database, and we realized that the uh, assignment scheme that uh, the Social Security Administration had been used to to, to assign the, the numbers contain much less randomness than uh, previously believed. So people, scholars and uh, uh, observers, and uh, obviously the SSA itself, knew that the scheme was not uh, entirely random. But there was a belief that it was random enough to make it hard to just predict or infer someone's SSN just starting from public data. We discovered that that was not the case, that in fact SSNs can be predicted, and and I use the term predicted, so statistically predicted. It's it's a nine-digit number, so typically we cannot predict just with a single attempt all the nine digits correctly, but if we say have 50 attempts or 100 attempts, then we can know with, with a good degree of likelihood that the actual number lies within in that attempts. list of, a, yeah. of 50 or 100. Yeah, it depends also on the state in which the person is born, on the year they are born. Do but you, it's pretty systematic, or it used to be. So, yeah, what happened basically is that in the beginning, uh, social security numbers were not assigned when someone was born, but when someone entered the workforce, typically, uh, which happens at unpredictable moments of someone's life, or, or rather, uh, for each person, it may happen at a different time, a time different than the next person. Or during, especially the uh, the 80s, the probability that social security numbers will be assigned at birth increased dramatically. That created uh, a, a sort of a fixed point that can be used as a leverage to uh, both understand better how the assignment scheme worked, but also to infer the SSN of a given person based on, based on the date of birth. Now, uh, when we published these results, uh, truth to be told, the, so- the Social Security Administration had already started considering, for independent reasons, changing the assignment scheme. So they, we, we get bet, no credit for that. I bet they accelerated once the paper was maybe, published. May, may, maybe accelerated, or maybe we influenced some, some, some part of the assignment scheme. I cannot know. But I, I know that the it has never been a pro... Uh, this, this has not been the SSN says fault or or issue. The problem is that the social security numbers were designed in the 1930s to fulfill a purpose completely alien from the purpose that now they are used for in in, in the credit industry. With a social Mm -hmm. security number and a person's name and a person's date of birth, you can often create a line of credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, under the person's name. Well, social security numbers are taken as evidence. It's kind of like as an as a authentication device. Yes, yes. Knowledge of that is taken as evidence that you are who you claim to be. But that's not what SSNs were created to do. That's not what the Social Security Administration meant for them to be. So this is, again, another interesting story about how 
over time, you know, function creep. Over time, some uh, a device, as I said, created for, for a certain goal started being used for other goals, and this in turn created the huge problem of identity theft that we have nowadays in the United States. Well, it is um, it's always the case that with uh, innovation and technology, you get opportunities, but you also get risk. And trying to think about how we try to maximize the benefits from the opportunities while also minimizing mm-hmm. the risks that we're exposed to is a, it's an ongoing challenge. That's true. So I wanted to ask, you work a lot in this privacy space. I'm guessing you may have some, some tips for your average consumer about things they might do to protect their personal data. Like what, what things might we think about doing to keep our data in a more private forum? My answer may surprise you. Uh, hopefully, uh, not in a, in, in a bad uh, in a bad way. Meaning that there are things we can do for sure. Some things are uh, are obvious. Don't put your SSN on a public document that you put online. Don't don't take a copy of your credit card or your ID and post it on Facebook. Obvious. Straightforward. Straightforward. In fact, it it it, it, it takes uh, effort and time. Uh, and, and, and cost to actually do these things rather than not doing them. So basically, don't be silly. Then there are things which are actually a little bit more uh, demanding, a little bit more consuming. They take more effort and knowledge. Um, I was referring earlier to all these privacy enhancing technologies that m- many, uh, that all of us can use. Uh, we can use uh, encryption to protect our emails uh, and to protect the content of our hard disk. We can try to use messaging systems, which are more secure and more more private uh, than the common ones that are most popular. I will not make names, but anyone with access to a search engine can mm-hmm. easily find its technologies. And yet, and this is perhaps the part of my answer that may surprise you. I'm not necessarily sure that my advice to people will be use of these technologies um, for, f- for a simple reason. Uh, well, maybe it's not that simple, but it's a, it's an issue of principles. Uh, do we really want to live in a world where we push the responsibility of privacy protection back to the users, or do we want a world where the problem of privacy is addressed in a more systemic and, uh, in a way, comprehensive manner? Because, yes, there are all these technologies, but can we really expect end users to spend their time being privacy experts, always kept up to date about the latest technology? Because it's an arms race, right? There is a new way of tracking, and there is the new protection against the tracking. Then after there is the protection, there is a new, new way of tracking, which is even more sophisticated. Then there is the protection against that. It's an endless race that consumers can hardly win. So do we really want them to feel responsible for a problem which is really a societal problem? That's why I'm suggesting that perhaps what we have to do is to look for societal scale solutions, such as uh, technological solutions, uh, rebuild the infrastructure so as to be more uh, privacy protective, or policy interventions. Uh, But we go back to the issue of uh, what exactly is the precise form that those interventions should take. Well, that's a very difficult question for which I do not have an answer. Well, we're almost out of time, and I certainly don't want to end with you not having an answer. (laughs) So I I wanted to just ask uh, one last question, which is 
Are you optimistic about the future, or do you think that the the challenges that we face are like so large that they're unlikely to be overcome? Absolutely optimistic. Uh, and in a way, it is apt that we are ending with this question because my answer goes back to exactly where we started uh, this fun, interesting conversation. We were talking about these uh, uh, different definitions of privacy, and I was claiming that informational privacy is just one angle. Uh, there are many different angles, but they all fall under this uh, dialectic negotiation between public and private. And I even claim that privacy, there is some evidence that privacy is a universal need of people. So is uh, the need to disclose and socialize, by the way. So if you believe in this argument I'm making, they suggest that privacy is a need which is a constant, a universal constant across human beings. So to claim that privacy is dead is to confuse uh, a contingent situation with uh, a universal need. What I mean is the following. Uh, people seem to have a need for privacy, and that need take takes many different expressions. Nowadays, the technology is reducing the availability of private space for individuals. But if uh, my assumption is correct that people still have that need, then we always find a way to satisfy that need. It could be by leaving social media. It could be by using privacy-enhancing technologies. It could be by creating and reclaiming private spaces for themselves. That's why... Fundamentally, I'm optimistic because technology changes, but human nature does not. That's a good way to, to end it, a good note to end on. This has been really, really fascinating, Professor. It's great to have you here. I've been talking with Alessandro Aquisti. He's a professor of information technology and public policy at the Heinz College at Carnegie Mellon University. Thank you again for being here. I've really enjoyed it. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I also want to thank you for listening. I hope you found this as enjoyable as I have. And I trust you will tune in for our next edition. Thank you. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at frbatlanta.org.